Welcome to the CEC report for the 19th of January 2018. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show, Australian banks in path of mortgage tsunami that could bring down global system. And is Malcolm Turnbull hell bent on war in Asia? So firstly, Australian banks in path of mortgage tsunami that could bring down global system. Now we'll talk about that mortgage tsunami and the details of that in a moment. But firstly, to situate it, there's been a number of further warnings. A lot of commentators are talking about a new global financial crash this year. Of course, we've been saying it since the first one and even before that, but we knew 2008 wasn't the end of it. Everything they did in response to that crisis made matters worse and there's a much bigger bubble. There's manifold bubbles on every front. So just to quote a couple of the more distinct warnings in the last week, uh, Desmond Lackman, former Deputy Director of IMF Policy Development and Review Department, on the 9th of January, he said there are numerous good reasons to fear that if the consequences of today's global bubble are indeed different from 2008, it may be because it is more dangerous. Bubbles are much more pervasive today than in the run-up to the 2008 financial crisis when they were contained to the US housing and credit markets. Now they can be found in almost every part of the world economy. So we've been saying that also for many months on the show. Uh, then you had on the 8th of January in the Telegraph, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, their business writer, who said we are in uncharted territory because, as he pointed out, central banks have never conducted quantitative easing on a mass scale before and they have never tried to reverse it by selling bonds back into the market. Least of all, when global debt is a record 332% of GDP and the system has never been more sensitive to shifts in monetary policy. And finally, you had uh, Pascal Blanc, Chief Investment Officer at Europe's largest asset manager, Amundi. And uh, he wrote this article with Professor Eamon Rajan, the Chief Executive of Create Research. In the Financial Times on the 4th of January, it was headlined, Global debt is the danger, beware the butterfly moment. And they go on to say that the global economy is vulnerable to the butterfly effect, the part of chaos theory that says small changes can lead to big outcomes. You know, Lisa, we, I think uh, sometimes you have to wonder whether, you now we've been reporting on these, 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 these crises for a long time, whether people are you know, becoming uh, sort of like immune to this, these warnings all the time, but mm. the warnings are getting more and more serious as we get further and further from the original global financial crisis mm. because what's taking place is there's never been a solution put in place. No. Just more and more money priming, you know, quantitative easing, more and more band-aids, more and more actions taken behind the scenes that are not reported. Mm -hmm. And there are actions being taken, but not to deal with the debt crisis, not through actions like we call for, like Glass-Steagall, mm -hmm. where you put the necessary existing banking system, the, the boring banking, the, the mortgages, the, uh, you know, the deposits and something, protect those and then deal with this speculative cancer that we have, this debt cancer because of the speculation, you know, quarantine that from the existing economy. None of those sorts of political policies are being followed because we have been, uh, for the last 40 years, under this policy of monetarism where everything is geared towards the speculative uh, policy of using money as its own tool yeah. and this policy is coming to an end yeah. and, and they've got to continue 
to prop it up yeah. by policies that are not <laughs> talked about publicly, yeah. but are creating bubble after bubble after bubble after bubble, but all these bubbles, you know, everything bubbles that we talk to about, are about to pop. Mm. And see, they, they have no option unless they're, that's why they keep pumping them up, unless they went with Glass-Steagall, but that's a political question. It would be the biggest, you know, political shift in terms of control back into the, power back into the hands of governments, you know, for probably centuries, that's if right. that were to take place. So that would have mammoth implications. Huge implications. And I think, you know, we talk about a policy, for example, in our organisation of national banking, right, where you actually have a national bank. Now, a national bank, like was, say, enacted pretty much in, during the war by Curtin and Chifley, where he, Curtin and Chifley, politically used the Commonwealth Bank effectively as a national bank to govern the, the economy during wartime conditions, where it created, the government created the policies and directed the private banks through the Commonwealth Bank to direct the economy. Now, that was a political process because at that point we're absolutely necessary to, in order to build up our economy to fight the war. But it was a political process. Mm. So national banking is a political process. Now, today you say, well, where's that process? Well, that process is completely in the hands of the private bankers. So the political process driving our economy, or for that matter, the global economy, is in the hands of the private bankers. And that's why we have the mess. Mm. So until we have regained the process where the political decision makers, the, the politicians, go back to the idea of making decisions in the interests of the economy as a whole, mm. in the interests of what we call the general welfare, unless we get back to that, mm. that none of these policies are going to be solved. And that's where Glass-Steagall fits yeah. in. And Australia, Craig, could actually lead the world in this if we got our act together. And I say that because we have to get our act together because we have this mortgage tsunami bearing down now. Now, the reason for that is the subcomponent of our massive mortgage bubble, uh, which is interest-only loans, where people are not repaying principal, they're only paying interest on the loan. And some people really aren't even aware that they're about to get hit because after the first five years of oh, such a loan, five years. I mean, that's a very short. Period yeah, of time. then they start to pay both principal and interest. Now, a big increase, and we can put up a graph of this, which was on the front page of our alert service, our weekly publication. Um, a big jump in interest-only loans began in 2013, and that was basically deliberately promoted in order to prop up the housing bubble, which was reaching its limits. Um, so now, from 2013, it's five years to 2018, and there's going to be, some people will see an increase of, say, $1,200 a month on their mortgage. That's just on a half a million mortgage. Some people are on, obviously, a million dollars or more. Um, so this, you've got about maybe $580 billion of mortgages in this component of mortgage, total mortgages. The Australian Financial Review echoed our warning uh, that they're reckoning that $60 billion of these loans will reset in the next four years. And Digital Finance Analytics Principal Martin North said the horse has bolted. He thinks the real crunch will hit 2019, 2020, but that'll be if we're lucky. Um, but he says this is horribly like the USA scenario with the reset loan rates that catalyse the global financial crisis. So the solution, as you said, is Glass-Steagall. Now, we did have Kate Carnell, the small business ombudsman, come out this week saying that um, banks should be treated like utilities because they're basically essential services. So like your power and your water and so forth, you know, they can't say to you, I won't provide you a service. They have to be treated in such a way by the government. Now, we're going to stop for a moment, but we're going to continue talking about this right after this short break.
Welcome back to the CEC report where we're talking about the mortgage tsunami about to hit our banks. And as I said, Kate Carnell, the small business ombudsman, uh, has called for banks to be treated like essential services, which they are. Because, and this is a big deal actually because she's a liberal, you know, the Liberal Party is quite oriented to the banks. Yeah, well, this, that goes back to what I was saying before. But if you leave the economy in control you know, of the private banks, mm -hmm. this is what you get, the sort of mess you get. But whereas you look at what we were talking about before with Curtin and Chifley, where the banks are brought under control by, of the Commonwealth Bank and regulated by the government for the benefit of the people, mm. you can see how, yes, they are essential, but they have to be managed. Yeah. Right? They have to be treated in that. They can't let the private banks by themselves run the economy because mm. this is the sort of mess you get and into. And that's where this crash, in one sense, is a good thing, actually, because it's going to wrest the power from those banks in any case. It's just whether we can manage it in an orderly way so well, we don't wipe out the economy. There's going to be a whole raft of different policies brought in which might be a bit shocking to people because you can't allow people to be thrown out on the street, yeah. lose their homes and well, so forth. I want to talk about that now, the political shift, because this was raised in the British press. Um, you had the British fund, there's a fund called GMO and the manager of that fund, Jeremy Grantham, on the 3rd of January wrote a paper bracing yourself for a possible near-term melt-up and so his um, thesis is that there's going to be a melt-up, a massive surge on Wall Street, but then it could be followed by a decline of up to 50% or more. And Ambrose Evans-Pritchard, who I mentioned earlier in The Telegraph, commented on this. And what he said was interesting because he said, if Grantham is right, we face a wicked political denouement, meaning the final act or finale of a play. Uh, he said, how would the West's bruised democracies respond to the spectacle of another Gatsby-esque obscenity on Wall Street and in the city, followed by a double-dip depression? The clean broom of Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn would be the least of our worries. The great settling of scores that never quite happened after the crisis in 2008 might this time sweep away the entire economic order. And Craig, that's exactly what Jeremy Corbyn said in a nutshell in his speech to his Labor Party's conference last year, where he spoke about the fact that politics was finally catching up with the crash of 2008 because the Labor Party offered people a clear choice. And I think that's what you're seeing here in, also in Australia, Lisa. There's going to be a lot of policies going to have to come into to the fore. You've got an overinflated housing bubble. You've got people in overinflated mortgages. Well, happens when the, you know, the, the, the housing bubble actually bursts because mm. of the exposure of the banks and everything we're we'll talking about. What, people are going to be thrown out in the street? Mm. No, you're going to have to have policies like we've talked about in our Homeowners and Bank Protection Bill back in 2009. It's available on our website. People should go back to that. Have a look at that. The mortgages can actually be renegotiated at a low interest design. rate over a long term to make people, you know, allow them to stay in their homes. And the the point, though, is, Elisa, is that you have to think about policies from the point of protecting the people, even mm -hmm. sometimes from themselves, because they don't understand how they're being swept up in the insanity of current economic thought. Mm. And a lot of these policies will be shocking to a lot of people. But yeah. we're in a speculative bubble. Yeah. In speculative bubble equals insanity. And, and that's the, the problem we were dealing with. And one big aspect of that that I want to raise of that bubble is the corporate debt bubble, which has, there's been many warnings about, including from us. And just in the recent week, you've had um, two major collapses. The South African-based conglomerate called the Steinhoff Group, um, which is it was a so-called zombie company, which is now a so-called fallen angel because it has collapsed. And the Bank for International Settlements, by the way, says that one out of ten corporations in emerging and advanced 
economies are zombie companies, so they're dead men walking basically. So it went down and four major banks, namely Citigroup, Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, couldn't happen to a nicer mob, uh, lost more than a billion dollars. But now we've also got the case of Carillion, the UK construction company and service provider, one of the UK's biggest contractors which has collapsed uh, as well. And they owe a billion pounds to 30,000 businesses, many of which are expected to go under as a result. And also there's banks that loan them about $2 billion that are exposed. And I want to show a clip of Jeremy Corbyn addressing the fundamental issue here because um, this company's taken up a lot of the privatised government contracts. So he addresses the cause of what's leading to this crisis being lib economic liberalism, privatisation and deregulation. So we'll just watch that clip. In the wake of the collapse of the contractor Carillion, it's time to put an end to the rip-off privatisation policies that have done serious damage to our public services and fleece the public of billions of pounds. This is a watershed moment. Across the public sector, the outsource-first dogma has wreaked havoc. Often it's the same companies that have gone from service to service, creaming off profits and failing to deliver the quality of service our people deserve. The evidence is clear, and it is everywhere. Look at the two billion public bailout of Richard Branson's Virgin and Stagecoach for their own failure to run the East Coast Line properly. Or the scandal of the National Health Service being sued by private companies like Virgin after losing a contract bid. Staff and patients in our NHS are facing shocking conditions this winter. Tory underfunding has caused a crisis. But privatisation, outsourced contracts and profiteering have made it worse. Our public services, health, rail, prisons and even our armed forces housing are struggling after years of austerity and private contractors siphoning off profits from the public purse. It's time we took back control. We not only need to guarantee the public sector takes over the work of Carillion that they were contracted to do, but goes much further and ends contracts where costs spiral, profits soar and services are hollowed out. Labour will end the private finance initiative rip-off, put an end to the private profit is best dogma and run our public services for the benefit of the many, not the profits of the few. So, Alyssa, I think you can see why when um, uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard said what he said back on the 5th of January about Corbyn and Bernie Sanders taking over, mm -hmm. from that clip you can see how serious you know, Jeremy Corbyn is about dealing with the sort of policies that have wrecked the UK economy. He intends to change it. And he is dead serious. Mm, yep. And the Conservatives know that they're in for a complete change of policy. Yep, that's very good news. Um, now, just a reminder for people who have been following our campaign to stop bail-in laws, which are laws that will allow the government uh, to let APRA take uh, savings and various kinds of bonds to prop up banks during a crash. So this is what they have to bring in because they're not going with Glass-Steagall. Um, we need people to go and visit their MP to make sure they're aware of this. So go to our website and at the top you'll find the main big button you can click on to find all the instructions to go and visit your MP with a copy of the submission that we have made on this issue to the Parliament. Now we'll stop there and when we come back we'll talk about 
what Malcolm Turnbull's doing in Japan. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Is Malcolm Turnbull hell-bent on war in Asia? So as everyone probably knows, Malcolm Turnbull is in Japan at the moment. And look, you know, this guy, everything he does lately is rubbing China up the wrong way. And it's supposedly all inadvertent, you know, and all the commentators are saying, oh, you know, it's not aimed at China, we have to make them understand it's not aimed at them, but somehow we keep doing it and it's as if, you know, we're expected to believe the, the government are three-year-old kids or something, that they keep making the same mistake over and over again. Look, these policies are aimed at China. We had the foreign policy paper which stated outright that Australia is dedicated to stopping China unleashing its will throughout the region and in other words we will uh, back America and in fact push America to take a, um, a stance towards China which will essentially contain it and keep it restrained beyond any kind of expansion. Um, you had the foreign interference laws which were aimed clearly at China even though they said they were not. Um, in the last week or so you had the comments by the development minister regarding the Pacific Islands and how China's aid is bogging them down in debt and you know basically very cynically saying or insinuating that that's all it's all about for China's global ambitions um, and now you've got Turnbull in Japan and I want to start with what you know when he arrived and in fact in the lead up to it there was a, um, a mistaken broadcast where a warning was sent out that a North Korean missile had been launched at Japan and it was dismissed quite quickly unlike the same scenario that happened in Hawaii which we'll talk about in a moment However, you see these kind of things that are building a climate of fear, which will encourage the population to support regime change against North Korea. And certainly that was the stance that Turnbull took, because despite really key advances towards peace on the peninsula, which followed um, the leader of Kim Jong-un's uh, New Year's address, where he basically said, look, we've got our defences in place now, we want to have begin negotiations with peace on the peninsula with South Korea, we'll send a joint team to the Winter Olympics in February and so forth. Despite all those that progress and, you know, you want to take whatever chance you can, uh, Turnbull's saying, oh, no, we can't trust them, we can't be lulled into a false sense of security. So he's not helping the process whatsoever. And, in fact, his agreements with Japan, where they're trying to set up a new defence agreement, allowing Japanese troops to come and train in places like Darwin and so forth, um, it's an extension of what he's talked about previously, of re-establishing the quadrilateral dialogue between Australia, the US, India and Japan, which was always aimed at China, and it still is. Um, you know, everything he's doing, it's clear that he doesn't want to solve the North Korea issue. Basically, the Anglo-American establishment want to keep this enemy image so they can uh, reign in China. In contrast, look at what Democratic Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard had to say in reaction to this false alarm in Hawaii the other day. It is critical that we end our policies of regime change wars to provide that credible guarantee that the United States is not going to go in and topple the North Korean regime so that these conversations can begin towards denuclearization. Just to be clear, are you saying that Kim Jong-un's nuclear arsenal is our fault? What I'm saying is that Democrat and Republican administrations for decades, going back over 20 years, failed to recognize the seriousness of this threat, failed to remove it, 
and we know that North Korea has these nuclear weapons because they see how the United States in Libya, for example, guaranteed Gaddafi, we're not going to go after you, you should get rid of your nuclear weapons. He did. Then we went and led an attack that toppled Gaddafi, uh, launching Libya into chaos uh, that we are still seeing the results of today. Uh, North Korea sees what we did in Iraq with Saddam Hussein with those false reports of weapons of mass destruction and now seeing in Iran how President Trump is decertifying a nuclear deal that prevented Iran from developing their nuclear weapons, threatening the very existence in the agreement that was made. So, yes, we've got to understand North Korea is holding on to these nuclear weapons because they think it is their only protection from the United States coming in and doing to them what the United States has done to so many countries Wait, throughout Was it a history. mistake for the United States to take out Gaddafi and Hussein? It was, absolutely. But it's not just about containing China, is it, Craig? So it's, not, it's not just China, Elisa. I mean, you have to look in the background. You've got the BRICS agreement, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa mm. going ahead, forging. We never hear anything about that down here because we're part of the Anglo-American you know, cabal. You know, you've got all sorts of multilateral, bilateral agreements between these countries around the, the entire you know, New Silk Road you know, agreements, yeah. the Belt and Road Initiative of China. You know, China is involved in hundreds of different countries in terms of large-scale infrastructure development projects. So you have a new paradigm in the world which mm. is not centred around the powers of the Anglo-American establishment. And this is what's threatening the, 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 the Anglo-American uh, dynamic of which Australia is so sucked into that we, uh, we have to keep uh, flogging, literally, a dead horse. Our mm. racehorse died, and yet we keep flogging this thing, saying we could get, get this thing going. Well, it's what we said earlier. It's, you know, Ch what China's proposing with the Belt and Road Initiative, which can include the entire world in collaborative development projects, shifts yeah. the power out of the hands of the international banking framework. You know, one of the things that Conchetta Fieravanti Wells said, the development minister, when she addressed the Pacific Island nations, is that if we had more loans from the World Bank and the uh, IMF and the Asia Development Bank in there, as opposed to Chinese loans, there'd be more transparency. We can see their books, we can see what's going on, i.e. control. And of course, the two greatest nations that China's contributing to, contributing aid to in the Pacific, are Fiji and Papua New Guinea, both of whom last year signed on to aligning with the Belt and Road. And therefore, there's projects that China are initiating in those countries. Now, Australia, of course, has refused to align with the Belt and Road. And now, are we not only not doing it ourselves, we're trying to sabotage those countries from gaining the benefits from it. So it's nuts. It's absolutely crazy, Elisa. But this is the typical of the British policy that we've had to be, we've been stuck in. And this, we're coming up to Australia Day, right, Elisa? Mm. We're not a sovereign country, people. We're a British colony. We keep flogging this idea of we're a sovereign country, but we don't even have a republic. I mean, we're not a sovereign yeah. country. You know, we, our Australia Day should be a celebration of being us being a sovereign nation, right? Mm. This is the, our problem. Yeah, we're not. We acting, don't have a sovereign foreign policy. We're not acting in our interest by not joining the BRI. No. We're advancing Anglo-American interests. Even France, Macron just went to China, the president, and they're now saying we will uh, affiliate with the BRI and work together on joint projects. They called the BRI a treasure to civilization. Well, Macron did. But yeah. call in to find out more. We've written extensively about these subjects, about the Pacific Islands, what's really going on there in our Australian Alert Service. We'll send you a free copy if we haven't already. 
and you know go to our website to find out more information and to contact your MP. So thanks for tuning in. That's all we've got time for. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. And join in again next week.